Welcome to the Professor Parler podcast, along with my 15 guests today. Uh, okay, that's enough of that voice. Um, <laughs> so when, when we, we want to dive into things about the Bible and worldview and how, this all, uh, how these things relate to each other. And part of the point we were making last time is that when we think about worldview, it's not so much that these things are taught as they are caught through an embodied way of life that when we think about what a culture is, uh, that, that these worldviews are embodied in culture and in cultural practices, and that in a lot of ways, those cultural practices are not aimed so much at capturing our intellect, but aimed at capturing our heart. Like what is it? It, it gives us a vision for what the good life is and what really should drive us. Uh, and so that ends up being the force that draws us, that pulls us uh, to entering into ways of life, some of which might be consistent with Scripture and others of which may, may not be. Uh, and so over the course of the semester, we're trying to increase our awareness and attunement to how different cultural practices uh, have these worldview components uh, built into them, that they're drawing us into worldviews uh, that may or may not be in alignment with Scripture. Uh, now, last time uh, I mentioned Al Walters, uh, talked a little bit about his definition uh, of worldview. When he talks about how the Bible and worldview are connected, he says this. He says, Scripture speaks to everything in our life and world, including technology, economics, and science. Um, now, I think a lot of people uh, w would agree with this statement, but I would say in one sense this statement is true, and in another sense this statement is false. Uh, and maybe I'll start with the second one first, and that is, I would say, well, th this is false in the sense that the Bible speaks directly to all of our questions and concerns that might arise in, in modern life. Uh, so, for example, one of the things that people wrestle with is how do we think about um, you know, the ability of science to do a lot of things in our world that it clearly could not do at the time that the Bible was written. Uh, so when you think about uh, the ability to alter somebody's genetic makeup, uh, should, I mean, this, this is an interesting question, um, should we edit a child's genes uh, so that they don't have certain disabilities? Now, some people might initially say the answer is yes. Uh, other people might say, let's put the brakes on a little bit and think about this more. What are we saying when we start talking about the ability to alter, kind of alter uh, the genetic makeup of a person? Is that something we should do or not? If you're looking for a direct verse in the Bible that speaks exactly to this question, precisely to this question, you're not going to find it. Uh, right? It's, you're not going to find that. But I think part of what Walter's saying, in the sense in which this is true, is that what Scripture does is it gives us this foundational narrative of, of who God is and of how he interacts with people and this foundational narrative of who we are called to be as his people. And so it gives us this general overview, a, a, an understanding biblically and theologically of, uh, of who God is. And so we then oftentimes have to do some work to figure out, based on what Scripture teaches, how do you move from, from those teachings to the concrete questions in my particular context today. And this is what Walters is getting at, is that once we understand the way that scripture is all-encompassing, that it does speak to these things, uh, then we, we start to have to grow in our ability to discern how we make those moves from the biblical and theological foundations to the contextual questions of our day. So with something like this question of genetics, uh, we, would, we would think about things like, what does it mean for human beings to be made in the image of God? Right? Does that mean some human beings are made in the image of God? Uh, does it mean only human beings who don't have certain 
genetic disability, or disabilities linked to certain genetics, uh, that only they're in the image of God? What does it mean to say that all people are made in the image of God, and how does that begin to form our thinking for how we respect human life in general and individual human life? Is that something we can just uh, alter uh, in any way we choose? Uh, and this is where it gets tricky because we would say, well, there's a sense in which God has also given us power and control to engage our world. And so it's, it's valid to work against disease. It's valid to work against some of those things. The question is, where, where and how do we understand the limits of that and how we negotiate that uh, in our current context? Yeah, Josh, question. I was just going to uh, add that we also need to kind of uh, see how we're defining disease as well. Yeah. Because there are a lot of things, or disability, because there are a lot of things that, or some things that people would call a disability, which people with that disability would say, no, it's not really, we don't consider it a disability. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's a great point. Uh, that even how we articulate those things need to be read through a biblical framework and, and yeah, understanding of that. Um, and so when we think about worldview questions, this is you'll find these in a variety of thinkers in different ways. When we start asking worldview questions, uh, these are five questions that come up quite frequently. One is, what's the nature of reality? Uh, and I I think I mentioned. Four of these five uh, last time when we talked about the N.T. Wright diagram. Uh, but what's the nature of reality? How do I understand uh, the makeup of the world in which I find myself? Uh, and so, again, thinking about you know, two maybe very different answers that people might give today. Uh, a Christian perspective would say the nature of reality is I, I find myself in God's creation, where God is a, a good and loving creator who has made all things and who sustains all things and who uh, is working to redeem all things. Uh, and somebody else might say, well, the nature of reality is uh, we are matter in motion. All it is is the physical material reality around us, and that ultimately at the end of the day, uh, that's how we uh, explain what is. And so when we think about the nature of reality, uh, it goes to a very much more materialistic view. Uh, so where am I? Again, how do I find myself? Uh, how do I position myself within this reality? Right, That I am... Again, on the one hand, somebody might say, I'm an image bearer of God, uh, and I understand myself to be in this relationship with God, in relationship with other human beings and creation. Uh, whereas somebody else might say, well, well, where am I? I'm a, well, in essence, I'm a tiny speck of dust floating on a slightly larger speck of dust floating in the midst of a huge, almost empty void, mostly of chaos, but with a little bit of order. Uh, here and there scattered around. And so those are, again, the two very different outlooks uh, on life. Uh, what's the problem and what's the solution? Then again, from, again, if, uh, you're, I'm sure, uh, very familiar with hearing this uh, worldview articulation of creation, fall, redemption. Uh, and then usually something like new creation or consummation in terms of still looking ahead to things. But it's important to understand that uh, all worldviews, to some degree, identify some kind of quote-unquote fall, some kind of problem with the nature of reality, uh, that there is something wrong uh, either with the world out there or with something inside of me that is causing a problem and then prescribing some kind of solution uh, that, again, even if they don't use the language of salvation or redemption, 
Uh, it's there in, in how they operate. And then finally, how should we live? Uh, that these things are not, ultimately, these are not just philosophical or uh, theological questions. These are questions that have an impact uh, on my daily reality, that how I articulate my answers to these things uh, is going to affect the way I live uh, day in and day out. And so the challenge for us really is to say if the Bible does speak to everything, maybe not always directly, but by articulating this, this deep view of, of who we are, of where we are, of what the problem is, of what the solution is, um, this then gives us the framework to start thinking through uh, a variety of different questions uh, and how this plays out. Uh, now, this class is called Reformed, Principles and Practices of Reformed Worldview. And occasionally I'll have people who are like, but uh, I'm Baptist, so does this class apply to me? Or I'm non-denominational, right? How, how does this work out? Uh, and so I want to take just a minute and talk a little bit about this, this language of Reformed Worldview. Um, David Nagel, in his book, Worldview, The History of a Concept, uh, says this. He says, the headwaters of the worldview tradition among evangelical Protestants can be traced to two primary sources, both of which flow from the wellsprings of the reformer from Geneva, John Calvin. The first is Scottish Presbyterian theologian and minister James Orr. The second is the Dutch neo-Calvinist theologian and statesman Abraham Kuyper. Uh, Somebody should name a college after him. Anyway, uh, so when we think about how this works, part of what we're saying here is just the reason why this is called Reformed Worldview is partly for historical purposes. That this is a way of thinking, this is a way of approaching our, our faith and how faith intersects with life and culture and reality uh, that does find its origins uh, in Abraham Kuyper. Uh, that this is, you know, this is why, uh, again, if you go on and if you go online and Google Reformed Worldview, you'll get a whole bunch of hits. If you Google Anglican worldview or Baptist worldview or Lutheran worldview, you will not get as many hits. Uh, this is partly because this is a way of thinking, a way of thinking about the world and life and culture that originates within the Reformed tradition, uh, but is not, does not require that you are part of the Reformed tradition in terms of your church background uh, or even in term, terms of your Theology and soteriology, if you guys want to you know, dig into like the five points of Calvinism and like, well, if I don't, what if I don't agree with all those, can I still bind a Reformed worldview? Uh, what you see is that if you look across um, kind of the broader Christian evangelical landscape in America, that this way of thinking is something that you will find in almost all the colleges and universities, influenced by Abraham Kuyper, this way of approaching things, whether they are specifically identifying themselves as part of the Reformed tradition uh, or not. Uh, Kuiper himself uh, points this. He, he talks about uh, Calvinism, and this is what Jamie Smith calls wide-angle Calvinism. A lot of times when people talk about Calvinism, they're thinking about, again, this very narrow debate about divine sovereignty and predestination and some of those particular questions that I know everybody's just waiting to jump into and wants to have a really deep discussion about right now. Um, but this wide-angle Calvinism, this is how, how, how Kuiper describes it. He says, Calvinism developed first a peculiar theology, then a special church order, and then a given form for political and social life, for the interpretation of the moral world order, for the relation between nature and grace, between Christianity and the world, between church and state, and finally for art and science. And so again, what he's pointing to here is this is not Calvinism in a very narrow sense, but it's this view that says, understanding who God is as creator and providential sustainer, understanding who God is as redeemer, what does this mean for things like politics, things like art, things like how we approach culture as a whole? And again, I'm not, um, 
I'm not trying to pick on any Baptist, but I'll say my own experience growing up Baptist, we didn't really have any kind of articulated theology of art. Right? This wasn't really something we thought about. It was, it was just more like, well, listen to Christian music and don't listen to non-Christian music, which is not really a theology of art. <laughs> right? And so that's, that's, that I think is what Kuiper's getting at, is if we think about these deep-rooted biblical and theological principles, it starts to frame how we think about everything. Um, just a few other things when we think about this. An older way of talking about this is world and life view. The idea here is that when we're talking worldview, we're including the entire cosmos, all of created reality. This is all fair game uh, for thinking about worldview. And that at the root of this is this narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. And the idea, I would, I would say it this way, uh, that part of what happens in redemption is that God's grace both restores creation and perfects creation. Uh, that a big part, you'll find this over and over against reform, in Reformed thinking, that salvation is not, in some sense, God adding something totally new, but it's God actually restoring his creation to how it should have operated in the first place. Uh, that what he is doing is, in a sense, bringing us back to how things should have been. But there's another sense in this. I want to be clear about this too. There's also a sense in which grace or what, what's happening in redemption is that God is actually perfecting creation, bringing it to its goal, uh, helping to set it back on track. It's a little bit, you know, the illustration I think of um, that, that helps me wrap my mind around this is uh, my, kids, my kids like playing with toy trains. They don't have a motorized one, but when I was a kid, I did have this special, I think when I was like four or five, I got this nice G.I. Joe train set that would kind of run on its own. Uh, and every once in a while, if, if people, namely me and my brothers, got a little bit too aggressive playing around it, we'd knock it off the track and it's just laying on its side and the wheels are going, but it's not, it's not going anywhere. Well, the idea here is that what's happening in redemption is that the train is get setting, gets set, set back on the track where it was. But this train is also going somewhere. So that when we think about what God is doing in redemption, it's not just that he takes us back to the beginning. It's that in the beginning, God's purpose was always to lead his creation somewhere, somewhere beyond where it was in the beginning. And so God's work of redemption both restores creation, but it also perfects creation. It takes creation uh, toward its intended goal. We'll dig into this a little bit deeper as, as the semester goes on, um, but that's a really uh, important component of this. Uh, the, the last thing I'll say here um, in kind of highlighting some of these points is that the reform worldview is very much what Nicholas Wolterdorf calls a world formative faith. And he contrasts this with averted faith. And the idea here is, I don't know why he uses this word, I guess because he's a philosopher and he's supposed to use a big word that nobody will understand. Um, but the idea here is that for some people, their faith almost pulls them out of the world. Right? That, that you kind of say, we need to avoid the world, we need to get away from this. Uh, and Wolterdorf's point is that the Reformed tradition has always said, we have a calling in God's world. And so your calling from God is not a calling that takes you out of the world, but it's something that says, you are called to a, a creative task, a formative task within creation, within your particular culture, within your particular place. Uh, and so it really, in that sense, gives purpose 
Well, it doesn't just say there's this religious dimension of your life and give purpose to that, but it says all of your life is lived in relationship to God, and so there's this faith-infused dimension to everything that we do. So it's a question of what, is, what, is, what does following Jesus mean for uh, my work? What does it mean for how I relate to my friends? What does it mean for my family life? What does it mean for my entertainment choices? What does it mean for my money? So in a way, it's saying there, there's nothing that's sort of out of bounds. You're like, well, here's where I just kind of live like anyone, and here's like the religious part of my life. Uh, very much works against uh, that kind of compartmentalization. Um, for the sake of time today, I'm going I'm to skip over these key terms because we'll come back to those uh, as we dig into this more uh, as we move along in the semester. Um, but let me stop for a minute as we're switching gears and going to think a little bit more about intellectual character uh, and these intellectual virtues. Any questions, comments, points of clarification? I'm thinking about reformed worldview, how we understand that. Yeah, Michael. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I see that, that you're trying to make it so that people who are not from the reformed tradition will not be, you know, immediately put off by the word reformed and saying, you know, it has to do with every, like it involves all of us. But at the same time, we are coming at it from a specific perspective, from a specific tradition, from a from a specific school, like re reformed, uh, does mean that does have that specificity. Yeah, it's not general for, for everybody. Yeah, well, and, or maybe but, I would say. But, but by that I mean that's not that we can't assume that reformed is going to like someone can be like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm reformed too in that sense. Yeah, you know, like. We are coming at it from a specific tradition and school of thought. Yeah, or, or that there are, so I think there are some different nuances in how you can, so I'm just going to take two minutes on this because we could go down a lot of rabbit holes with this. Um, that What does it mean for somebody to say they're part of the Reformed tradition? <clears throat> it could mean that they, they're part of a specifically Reformed church, uh, like the denomination Reformed Church in America, or CRC, or other Presbyterian churches that would in some ways be part of this ecclesial tradition. Uh, or a theological tradition. There, I even have some people who say, like, I consider myself Reformed or Calvinist, even though they're Baptist. And what they really mean, what they're really going for there, is like a thin slice of what Calvinism talks about, which is soteriology and understanding salvation, how we're saved, God's work and our work in that. Um, but then I think, and I think built on, built on all that, like Kuiper says, is this Reformed worldview. But I think one of the interesting things about that is. There's an extent to which I would say you don't necessarily have to be part of the Reformed ecclesial tradition to be to understand and buy into what, what we're talking about with Reformed worldview. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's that, not what okay, yeah, yeah. I, I don't. I didn't think you were, but I just want to clarify so that so that we can understand those different layers of identity or what people mean when they use those use those terms. Um, or maybe it's one of those things where I think even about the broader landscape of American Christianity, a lot of people have caught Reformed worldview, <laughs> even if they haven't been taught it. Like, oh, there's something to this uh, that, that really does speak to how we engage in the broader life and culture and society. Uh, and so they can see that, the, the validity to that and the value of that, uh, even if they wouldn't necessarily consider them reformed, themselves reformed in some of these other, some of these other senses. School of thought or tradition, I meant more 
we're coming from a theological perspective that basically does see uh, the sovereignty of God involved in, in, in all of this. Yeah. Whereas other other traditions, other schools of thought, do not start off of that uh, basis. Yeah. So that, that's what I meant by um, specific interpretation. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. No, I appreciate I appreciate that uh, that that comment and that insight. Um, all right, so I'm passing around handouts uh, for us to think a little bit about intellectual character, uh, and I'm so I'm curious with this. How did you find the the reading as you processed uh, just a couple chapters uh, of the reading for today? Did you find it um, easy to follow, challenging, thought provoking? No. No, you were not supposed to have all seven. I just picked. I just picked a few uh, uh, to hand out. Was it? Wait, was it three or was it four? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so what? Do you, I mean, this is something we talk a little bit about at Kuiper, uh, but I want to think. I want to think about. Um, they still on? They're still. They're still uh, posting over there on the bulletin board uh, of the intellectual virtues listed right there. So, as you. It's like a locker room as you go out, you're supposed to like everybody tap it at the end of the day. <laughs> Coming in and out of class, intellectual virtues, stay strong. Um, but I want to think just a little bit about this. And part of the reason that, that I want to highlight this at the beginning of this class uh, is because I want to try to specifically make this connection between intellectual virtues and the task of education as a whole and the specific paper project that you're working on throughout the semester. In other words, I want you to see that what I'm asking you to do as you engage in this research and analysis paper is not simply to jump through hoops for the sake of getting a grade, but that what's happening is you have this opportunity to grow in intellectual virtues uh, and that that in many ways is actually more significant than any grade uh, that you will ever receive. And so for me, I want to frame what we're doing in this class through this lens uh, of intellectual character and intellectual virtues. Uh, now, to do this, I want to say just a couple words about virtue ethics. Virtue is, is maybe not a term that we use a lot in our cultural context, um, but a virtue understood in kind of the classic philosophical definition of virtue uh, is an excellency, or we might say it because even you're like, well, thanks, that really helps me understand it. Um, when, when something is virtuous, another way to say this is that it is performing or functioning in an excellent manner, or it's performing or functioning in the way that it should function. So some of you might be thinking, well, if that's true, then my car is not very virtuous. <laughs> All right, but that's part of what we're getting at. And the idea here behind this, the philosophical idea behind this is that human beings actually are supposed to function in a certain way. That there are certain characteristics, certain attributes that we should have, and that when we do have those, it's a kind of excellency, it's a virtue. It shows that we're, we're functioning well. And the opposite language of this is, philosophically, is this language of vice being a deficiency, that we are actually not functioning in the way that we are supposed to. Uh, and this way of thinking goes all the way back, uh, especially to the philosopher Aristotle. And one way to summarize this way of looking at human activity, human behavior, uh, is this. Maybe, and this is even something I've seen in the context of sports, locker rooms, things like that. Actions become habits. Habits become character. Character becomes your destiny. 
And so the idea here uh, is that each of us, uh, each and every day of our lives, are faced with a variety of choices. Uh, many of them big, but most of them small. Uh, and as you're faced with this choice, uh, you have to make some kind of action. So for example, if you're, you know, you're on the, the, the schoolyard playground and you see somebody being bullied, you have the, you have the choice at that moment uh, to either act uh, in courage uh, or cowardice. And so part of the question is, how are you going to act in that particular moment? Now here's, here's what virtue ethics points out, is that however I choose to act in this moment is going to influence the next time I'm faced with this same kind of scenario. That if I make the choice to act courageously, it is, in a sense, <coughs> going to help me to develop this habit of being courageous. Or if I respond and I'm cowardly, the next time I face this choice, it's probably more likely that I'm going to behave in a cowardly way. And so what is going on over the course of our lives is that we are making choices that not only become habits, but actually start to become virtues. And when we talk about a virtue, we're talking about, um, let's say it this way, it's an overall disposition. So that if I do something, if I, when faced with choices in front of me, uh, over time, as I begin to live into and lean into this posture of courageousness, that starts to become a virtue that I have. That that, that starts to become second nature for me to act in a courageous way. Uh, there's almost a sense, again, I think uh, it's interesting to see analogies here with uh, how we can train our bodies physically. That part of what goes on in sports is that we're doing, there's a kind of muscle memory when you train yourself in sports. I really only know this in a few sports, not many. Um, <laughs> where in a lot of ways you don't want to think about what you're doing. Right? As an athlete, like the worst, if my jump shot is not working, the worst thing to do is for me to be like really focusing on my jump shot as I'm trying to shoot the basketball. You do have to reflect on it and think about it, but not while you're in the, the action. There's a sense in which if you do it well and you repeat it, it becomes second nature to you. And that's what's going on when we think about virtue ethics. Um, Aristotle talks both about moral virtues and intellectual virtues. In other words, that... Um, while we might think of these as having some overlap, intellectual virtues have to do with how we think, uh, whereas moral virtues have to do with how we act. Uh, and they're related, they're intertwined. Somebody who develops virtues in one area is probably gonna have those uh, in other areas. Um, but the idea here is that these are habits, these are patterns, these are ways of thinking uh, that we can live into and start to become uh, second nature. Uh, and so the seven that Dow talks about in his book are these. Courage, carefulness, tenacity, fair-mindedness, curiosity, honesty, uh, and humility. Uh, and it says these are all dimensions of our thinking of how we should, that, that we should try to develop the patterns of thinking in this way so that it becomes second nature to us uh, that we are naturally, uh, intellectually courageous. We're willing to ask hard questions. We're willing to ask difficult questions. We're willing to ask questions that might get us into trouble with some people. Uh, and you can go down the list here of, of these different intellectual virtues. And I'm going to ask you in just a minute to do some 
uh, do some reflection on these. But I want you to see that these virtues are connected to loving God and neighbor. And, and here's how. Dow says, growing in intellectual virtue is inseparable from following the two greatest commandments. Inseparable from following the two greatest commandments. That means it's, this is pretty important if we're going to say, love of God and love of my neighbor, this is what I'm called to as a follower of Jesus and as somebody empowered by the Spirit. It actually requires me to develop intellectual character. It's, it's not optional. Um, and part of the reason is because love, love for my neighbor, is more than a feeling. I'm resisting your just saying, but I won't. Um, save that for the variety show. Um, and so in, in this book, he illustrates this by telling the story of Dr. Paul Brand. I don't know if you're, you may or may not be familiar with Paul Brand, uh, but he's somebody who uh, was very much a pioneer in investigating uh, what people often refer to as leprosy. Uh, and so what happened is over, over the course of uh, years, decades, uh, devoting his life to investigating, usually in very impoverished communities, uh, this particular disease, uh, what happened was eventually uh, Dr. Brand made this breakthrough uh, because part of, the, part of the symptoms of this disease was that oftentimes people would actually, uh, their extremities would start to decay, the, their fingertips ends of their noses, ears, toes, like they would literally start to decay and begin to fall off. Uh, and part of what Dr. Brand figured out in the process of investigating this disease uh, was that what was happening here was not just that those things were degenerating, but what was happening is people actually were losing feeling in their extremities. And so it wasn't like these things just started to decay. It was that people would, uh, you know, they would, they would start to cut themselves or they would burn themselves or uh, you know, have a variety of things would happen to them and they couldn't feel pain. And so these things would go untreated and uh, would have eventually lead to the, the deterioration that happened there. But part of what Dow points out uh, is that it is not just good intentions that resulted in Dr. Brand's discoveries. He says, intellectual character is often the difference between well-meaning but impotent feelings and life-transforming expressions of practical love. Right? Do you get what he's saying there? Like to actually love somebody well, it often takes intellectual character. It's not just like, wow, I see people have a need. I just want to get in there and help. A lot of times if we do that without the proper knowledge, skills, and attitude, we can actually hurt more than we help. Right? This is why, for example, let me just to take one area, uh, this is why if somebody says, I think God is calling me into ministry. I want to be a leader. I want to be a pastor. Somebody comes and says, you know, if an 18-year-old comes to me and says that, I don't say, well, why don't you preach next Sunday? Right? Because that's actually probably going to do more harm than good to the people you want to minister to. Um, one other illustration. I love philosophy. I love grappling with a deep philosophical issue like the problem of evil. Uh, but every time I teach through that in Intro to Philosophy, I say, talking about this philosophically is different from what you say to somebody who is walking through hurt and pain in their life right now. Right? Somebody's like, I just lost a loved one, I just lost a family member. You don't say, well, let me articulate the logical prob philosophical problem of evil and explain to you why ultimately the theistic argument can defeat right, the atheistic. It's like, that's not helpful. And so it's not just a matter of having good intentions or even having a certain uh, level of knowledge, it's being able to bring that all together uh, in a helpful way.
Yeah, Jeremy. So then when you say, going back to talking about the 18-year-old who wants to preach, yeah. would you say that almost like lacks intellectual carefulness? Well, that, that would be one thing that I would say probably somebody at that, at that stage would be less developed in that area, so they would need to cultivate that more, yeah. Yeah, and so I wouldn't want to like discourage them. Like, oh, I don't really think God's calling you to that. But you would say, let's find let's find some sort of maturity appropriate ways to dig into and start to get some experience and skill in doing what you want to do, uh, being trained in the classroom, outside of the classroom. Uh, let's bring that all together so that you can get to the place where you can fulfill your calling by taking these small steps. And a lot of times we just kind of want to jump right over there where we assume like, oh, if somebody's well-meaning, then that must be all you need. Well, that's, that's why I wrote when you asked, what do you think Kuiper students lack? And I said intellectual carefulness. Okay. Um, because of that, and I, met, I didn't mean it, like, I wasn't like, trying to be like insulting or anything like that, um, but I found it, there's so many students who truly mean well, but they tend to try and run before they can walk, Yeah. so to speak. That's why I was just yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. And, and that kind of skips us around, but I'm, now I'm curious uh, what other people said, like your response in terms of what do, you, what do you think, which virtue do you think maybe Kuiper students struggle with as you think of? So you said carefulness. Other people said that as well? Yeah. Yeah. What, and why did you land on that? I said it more in the sense that it's easy to just kind of turn things and get things done and not be super careful Yeah. That extends, and I said that otherwise in like relationships and like the work you do here, it's easy to just like do it and not focus as much on like being intentional and careful on how you do it. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's a really interesting point, too, that when you think about these virtues, you can't just kind of keep them trapped into one little area of your life. Like if you start to develop intellectual, if you don't have intellectual carefulness in one area, it can be easy for that to start to kind of saturate other areas. And I said, I see people doing it with homework. Like, oh, I'll do that the morning of. And then I feel like it also gets into the other ways that they live their lives. Yeah. So you can't just put it in box. Yeah. Yeah. <coughs> yeah, Jeremy. So could you almost say that intellectual carefulness is almost like the base of what other virtues could build off of? Yeah. I, I, I do. So I'm kind of curious, like, do you think one of these is more basic? Like, is that what you're saying? Like, is carefulness maybe the basis like, for these others? Because I see, like, if you lack it, that means you're sloppy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and, and, like, that, like, so, like, you need to start with being careful and really, like, so when I see, uh, I'm talking in circles here, but when I see, no. like, intellectual carefulness, I see, like, how do I put this? Being precise and focusing on the many details and the nitty gritty of what needs to be done. Yeah. And if you don't do that, you kind of, you might be able to make your way over the top, but as soon as one of these building blocks gets taken away, so you have tenacity, if that gets taken away, it'll all come crumbling down. Yeah. So you have to start with a base of learning the nitty gritty, learning, you know, going through the steps. Like Leo was saying with homework, like actually doing all the reading and not just, scan through, oh, this is what I need to write down and yeah. up my answer, and not really knowing why, you just know that that's the answer that needs to be set. Yeah, you know yeah. What I'm saying? So you don't actually understand <coughs> it. Yeah. You just know what the answer is. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, my short answer to this, and maybe others can chime in on this too, but any, it's almost like any one of these could be the foundation, yeah. or, or more like, I think what it illustrates is these are actually all tied together. Like, if you're like, oh, I think I'm just gonna work on like three of them, and the other four, psh, like whatever, uh, that doesn't, it doesn't work. Um, and that you can start to see, so like, I think about this in terms of, when I look at this list, I think about something like humility. Like if you're not humble enough to say, I need to learn, a lot of it's like none of these others are going to happen. Uh, and so there has to be a humility that goes along with the carefulness. Because like part of the reason I'm not careful is like, I got this. I don't, you know, I don't really need this. I don't, you know, why am I, I'm just doing, or I'm just doing this to get through it. Um, which, you know, a whole other discussion is like, what's a reasonable amount to ask people to get through right. as professors and how do we think about this? It, you know, so it's not just like, oh, people are, Lazy. It's partly like people are trying to survive their lives, uh, right? And like make this all work. So I don't want to be, I don't want to like uh, come across overly, overly harsh in that way. Or the other one, like a lot of times I think, and I, I don't, I was like, can you teach intellectual curiosity? I don't know if you can. I wish you could, but it's one of those things that I wonder about. Maybe because I'm intellectually curious. It's <laughs> like, can you? Do you want to learn more about these? Yeah, yeah. It's almost like it, there's something to. I see it in some people where it's like they're just like they just want to know and they just want to learn, and then if, if people if people aren't, it's it's you can't just like force them like you should be more intellectually curious. It's it's I think a lot of times I think as people have seen something or like they've seen somebody who's modeled that in their life and like oh that's that's what it's like. But if you haven't seen that, I mean like I've extended family members who are like I have never read a book in twenty years. I'm like. That alone doesn't necessarily reflect on your intellectual curiosity, but it does kind of say something like, you know, I'm content to watch Netflix every day and just take whatever, absorb, just entertain myself and kind of go through life. Not that there's anything wrong with not watching Netflix. Um, but like watching only Netflix every day for 20 years and not reading any books um, or listening to podcasts. Uh, <laughs> I, know, I know they're not actually listening to this. Um, so I can talk about it. I can talk about them. You know, that, that's the kind of thing that's like, what? Like, something has to happen there, but it's not as simple as, right? You don't convert people by just preaching at them, like, you should be more intellectually curious. There's some kind of switch that has to flip uh, for themselves. But to me, I see that one as, like, a big driver. Like, if somebody's naturally, if they're naturally intellectually curious, I mean, you're like, they're going to do fine in college. Because it's like, the other stuff is, because they're going to be driven in that way. Yeah, Josh. I think uh, you kind of put it well when you said they're all interrelated. Because I. I, I'm looking at them, and I can see all of them being a face. But each one being a, being, being a face would direct the others in a different way. So if, for example, tenacity is your base, then getting things, getting things done and persevering through it will be, you're going to be looking at, through it through that lens, basically, yeah. all, the, all the other things. If curiosity is your base, then that will motivate the other things as well. So. So I think, you know, interrelated is, is a good way of putting it. Um, but yeah, I think each one of those could be its own base. And, but with the different base will come essentially different roads and avenues that you'll be, you'll be taking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can see kind of different emphases, different points of direction. Let me just make one more point and then I'm, ask you, then I'm gonna ask you to do a little bit of this exercise. Um, Skip over. I think I put this quote in there. I love this quote from Wendell Berry. So you can you can you can read it on your own. But his his point is 
love has to always be practiced. And it comes from gaining actual practical skills to knowing how to, how to embody love in particular situations. So I think about how this, um, how does this reshape how we view education, that if you view it through this lens that what you're getting equipped with in education is the ability to love people well. Uh, whether that's through social work policy class, but all social workers like loves policy, right? Yes, policy. Uh, right, but if you want to be in a, if you want to be an institution that does not have good policy, right? Like how many, if you ask people, like how many people you want your organization really have no clear policy on, like, right? Like in your human resources department or what you're going to do in certain scenarios, most people are like, no, I don't. Like I want the clear policy in place. So understanding that and knowing something about that is what love looks like in a concrete way. And so I think it reshapes how we view education if we start to understand that education is actually training in learning to love well. So even think about this. In your research process, uh, what intellectual virtues are connected to this? Asking, curiosity, courage, right? What kind of questions are you going to ask? What are you, what are you going to engage? Um, I occasionally, people will, when we talk about topics for this class, people are like, oh, I if I do this class, like, I can hear, like, what my, what my parents might say about this topic. I don't know, can I engage this in a way that might bring me into a dialogue that, with them in a way that might not always be complete agreement? Um, I think in the listening phase of this, tenacity. Tenacity just in tracking down sources, right? I'm going to find uh, sources that are relevant, that are, that are credible, that are going to speak to this. That in itself uh, sometimes takes work, tenacity to uncover. Uh, and am I going to go through the process of actually listening humbly and in a fair-minded way? Right, this is what, like when I start playing out this in, in my mind, uh, like, I mean, think about it. How does our broader culture train us to be humble and fair-minded when we listen to people with whom we disagree? Just agree. Right? There's no... I mean, what, what's the venue? Like, even in many of our churches, don't really train us in how do you listen in a fair-minded, humble way to people with whom you have real disagreements. In such a way, and this would be the challenge, this is partly the challenge for your paper, can you describe somebody with whom you disagree and describe them fairly and accurately in a way that they themselves would say, yeah, that, that's what I'm saying. Uh, right? we, don't, we don't engage in that practice uh, all that much. Uh, the last two stages of Aaliyah, ask, listen, engage, answer. To engage takes carefulness, takes precision, and it takes honesty about where you are really at on a topic. Here's what I believe, based on my research, based on my thinking about this, based on my analysis, here's what I think about this difficult topic. Am I willing to, to step out and, and be honest with that and actually give my own answer that does, I think, require courage uh, and also requires carefulness, right? That, that we're precise uh, about what we're saying and how we're, um, how we're going to articulate uh, what, it is that we, what it is that we say. Um, I'll let you do this exercise on your own, but I would even argue here that these different writing templates from They Say, I Say, you can see the intellectual virtues in these templates. That if you learn to write like this, it's training you to think in a certain way that's actually developing intellectual virtues. Um, so I'll let you reflect on that a little bit more on your own. But what I want you to do now for maybe um, 
It will take like eight to ten minutes to do this. Uh, if you look on uh, the back couple sheets of your handout for today, uh, point number eight is asks you to complete the intellectual virtues uh, self-assessment below. And just take a minute to read through these definitions uh, and do a little bit of self-assessment. I'm not going to ask anybody to rank themselves unless you want to say, like, wow, oh, I really stink at this one, or I'm really great at this one. I'm not going to ask you necessarily to divulge those. These are more for you to think about as we go into uh, this research project, uh, doing good analysis, doing good work, thinking about our worldview, just to kind of say, where do I need to grow? And maybe where, the, where are my areas of strength uh, that, I can, that I can really uh, continue to develop and grow in that way? And then on the very back page, I ask you just to do a little bit of reflection about <coughs> when, was, when was a time uh, when you demonstrated a virtue or, or maybe fell into a certain vice? And to think just a little bit about the circumstances, your experience, something that either helped you uh, or something that was a hindrance to you in that. Uh, and then look forward uh, to think a little bit about over the coming semester, where's in the area where you really want to um, work on demonstrating a particular virtue. Uh, so take about eight to 10 minutes. I'll, I'll just kind of gauge where people are at and we'll, when, when most people have finished up, uh, then we'll have a little bit more uh, conversation about, uh, about these things together. Uh, so take eight to 10 minutes, uh, just work on those on your own and then we'll pick back up in a few minutes. Uh, but I'm interested in hearing your reflection on these questions a little bit, uh, especially when you think about uh, this first question. Would you say that your educational experience, whether K through 12, college, etc., <coughs> does education help or hinder the development of the intellectual virtues? Yes, no. Yes, but, no, but. Okay, so in, in what ways? How does it help or so how does it hinder? Like if you do, so depending on teacher, professor, class, or whatever, I guess it's essentially like if it's, if it's the class is done correctly and it's taught correctly and it's taught to learn, and you know, you're taught, you know, you're here to learn, not for a day, you're here to learn. Yeah. Then I think, and then if the student themselves does it correctly, then yeah, I think they can develop these and sharp, kind of sharpen virtues. However, if you get in a situation where it's a letter grade and you got a teacher going through emotions, a professor, whatever it is, yeah. um, then you can teach a student how to BS and how to quickly get through stuff and how to say whatever the teacher wants to hear. So you can kind of throw all those virtues out the window and you don't really care. So you get rid of your honesty, you get rid of your fair-mindedness, you get rid of your carefulness and tenacity. Yeah. Um, and your courage essentially for saying what you truly believe or whatever it is. Yeah. So I think you can do it really well and it can sharpen these if you do it right and it has to be with both the teacher and the taught. Yeah. Or poorly and, it, and it's, it's the opposite in the same way. If the teacher doesn't do a good job, the students don't do a good job. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. How can you tell if a teacher does not value intellectual virtues? I'll give you an example. I, had a <laughs> I hope it's not me. I hope it's not me. I'm dangerous. I'm uh, afraid oh, to ask these questions. This is a, this is a CC prof that I had. Um, I hope I didn't get in trouble. Yeah. No, it's all right. Um, I mean, it was terrible. I mean, they, 
<laughs> I was in his mind. I was number five, five, two, three. You know, I mean, yeah. I was just a student. And yeah. He went up there, and it didn't matter what you said. It wasn't wanted to hear what he wanted to hear. He just marked it off. Yeah. I mean, I can't. I can't really like say exactly how it was, but I mean, yeah. I don't think he cared at all about students. Or yeah. Wanted to learn, wanted to become better people. He was there because it was it was his paycheck. Yeah. Um, and he read off PowerPoints and talked at us. For, yeah. It was a three-hour class. Three-hour show was horrible. Yeah. Well, I failed the class. I didn't. I didn't yeah. Because I, I couldn't do it. So, I mean, that's just an example of just, and no one in the class wanted to be there. It was awful. Yeah. So, you probably didn't care if you failed the class. No, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't care. It didn't bother me. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And he didn't care either. It's, no. it's just like he's, he's there to, to, yeah, to do. Yeah. So, so it's clear that he's already given up any kind of love of learning or caring about any of this for its own sake or for how it will help people in their own life and growth. But it's just, um, yeah, just, just checking the list. Which it's like, and I mean, I think this is a difficulty. Okay. Sometimes when you're committed to something, there are many days where doing the right thing does feel like work. Right, like where it is work to be committed to the intellectual virtues, but you can tell a difference between somebody who's doing work and they have a sense of the ultimate perspective and why they're doing it, versus somebody who is just, I'm here to check this off, get me out of here, uh, like I'll, I'll just do the min the minimal level of, of work. Um, yeah, other thoughts? Yeah, Julie. Um, in high school, I had a really good teacher who really encouraged. he didn't want to be there and it was in like a class where for people taking online classes hmm. and he would help other students like on their tests by like just telling them the answers and when I told him I don't think that's right he got upset with me and like, sent me to the principal but um, <laughs> yes dude, my other, other teacher he like encouraged people to ask questions and to be open about he would even ask questions, and then we would like find stuff all together. And he he made learning fun. Yeah. And students liked to go to class, and were excited to see what we would learn that day. So it was very. That I had them the same year too. So it was like half the day, or like the other day. Like, hey, so yeah. It's interesting to see the difference. Yeah. Teachers. Yeah, that is a really stark contrast to see it in in such a way. Yeah, over here, then over. In some classes, I feel like, um, personally, I struggle most with courage. I, <laughs> mm. um, and in some classes, I feel like totally like open and like comfortable with the students around me to say what I'm thinking and feeling. And um, in other classes, like I think I've only had like not that kind of, but I'm I'm doing a little bit down. Yeah. Too. There's been a couple of times where I'm like. Oh, maybe I'll just be a listener this time because mm. I, I don't want to get into that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that is tricky. And it's, it is interesting to think about how different environments and even different people, even other students, can help cultivate that sense or kind of squash that. Yeah. Um, it's one of the things I didn't realize going into teaching or teaching at a college level is, like, when you're teaching different sections, even of the same class, it's always interesting to... Uh, different classes have different dynamics. I mean, you see that as a student, but I saw it as a professor when it's like, I'm teaching like two of the, the same exact class, like back to back. It's like this class has a 
very different dynamic than this class, even in terms of like clearly like how comfortable people are to open up and talk about things um, or, or just the sense of like, yeah, I'm here because I want to do this and other people who are like, I'm here, <laughs> right? I'm here. Uh, and that's, and that's kind of the end of it. Yeah, Leah. I really encourage, I've had professors and teachers where you feel comfortable asking questions. And I've had some teachers, not really professors here, well, sometimes, yeah. where you just feel weird asking questions. Yeah. Where you feel like if you ask a question, you're interrupting the monologue. Yeah. And that they're like trying to get through the slides because they got a limited amount of time. And yeah. If you're going to ask questions, you're going to disrupt their process. Right? Yeah. You're an inconvenience. Yeah. Ask the questions because they're trying to get through their spiel. Yeah. So I feel like that can cultivate courage. Yeah. Yeah, like stop trying to learn. I'm saying something, uh, right? Yeah. Through through that process, it's even interesting. Somebody was telling me the other day about an interesting study, even of student perception of learning. So this was an interesting study that they did, where uh, they had students go through a class where they primarily had things through lecture, and then did uh, similar content but through different, more active learning engagements like discussion and other things like that. And then they had them, uh, they did some basically like assessment, like quizzes and some other things of students after they came out of those. And then they asked students, which class did you learn more in? Most students said, I learned, they said, I learned more in the lecture class, like their perception was I was getting fed a lot of information, but the data showed, their, their quizzes showed, they actually learned more in the active learning class. So sometimes, like even our perception of when am I learning or when am I not learning, or even from a student perception, like, well, I'm learning more. If, well, I don't, although most students wouldn't say, like, well, somebody lectured for three hours and just read PowerPoint. Uh, most people, I don't think, would say that. But even sometimes our assumptions about how does learning happen, what does the learning environment look like, you know, sometimes I wonder, like, how would it change the environment if we got rid of, like, desks and chairs? Like, I mean, even if you got rid of that, had, like, soft seating, how that would change people's, uh, right? A room would just have a different, a different vibe. Um, I mean, this, the, after going to my kids' classrooms at their school, I'm like, uh, we're very, there's very institutional uh, in here. It's, it's not like exactly like homey and welcoming and um, it's not supposed to be, it's college. Uh, but I, I don't know, I wonder how that works. Very comfortable in comparison to what I grew up with. Yeah. Like. We need firmer chairs, yeah, firmer like, chairs. I can't even say it. Just, just <laughs> yeah. Like, like what is. What is happening? Um, I'm always afraid yeah. somebody's gonna like impale themselves on it one time. It's just gonna snap, and the plastic is gonna like. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it does. Yeah, Jeremy. So I'm curious as to like you as a professor, not a student, but as a professor, say about these questions. Yeah. So part part of my approach is because I actually I think in a lot of ways education gets in the way of learning, <laughs> or schooling gets in the way of learning, and and so. Uh, number one, I think it's important for professors to actually care about what they're teaching and actually care about their students. That doesn't mean they're going to be perfect professors. I, I know I'm certainly not. But I think it makes a big difference. At least it made a big difference. Like if, if you can sit in like a cruisy class and think he doesn't care about you or the subject material, uh, right? No, nobody, nobody's going to have that impression. Um, but I do think it means then as, as a professor, you also think about how do, you, how do you help people? I'm reflecting on the reflection that I'm asking you to reflect on today. <laughs> like that, that part of what I have to think about is how do I help you be aware of this learning dynamic and me be aware of the learning dynamic so that we can actually achieve real learning 
and actually grow in these ways as opposed to just the BS that comes from going through the motions. Uh, and so I think for me, one of the most important things is to have this clarity about what is our end goal in the process of learning. And, and if, if our end goal is not this understanding of I'm growing in knowledge, skills, and attitudes so I can love God and my neighbor well, to me, then that's an intrinsic value to learning that totally reshapes how we look at it rather than, yeah, I'm here to get my grade, you know, punch the card, go on through to the next, the next thing. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of times in our world, we do treat, we have almost like this factory approach to education uh, where it's like, let's standardize, run people through the education mill, get them their jobs, get them their, you know, so they can get to their paycheck and, and that's what it is. Um, and I think that, Unfortunately, that's why people are even like, even at the high school level or below, like we got to make sure everybody passes the standardized tests, jump through those hoops. We just, you know, even for school administrators to like cheat and lie as some have done to, to kind of make, the, to make the whole factory keep working in that sense. Um, and this is where I think from my perspective to be able to teach at a Christian college like Kuiper is an advantage because you can talk about why the heck are we here, right? And what are you doing? And we can actually think about these things because we see that they're important in and of themselves, they have this intrinsic meaning. It's not just jumping through the hoops to get the degree, to get something after that. Um, because if we don't do that, we will fall into the, you know, I have a couple quotes in here on the, if we're not pursuing these virtues, we're gonna end up in a bunch of BS. Uh, and the problem with BS is not that it's false, the problem is that when we start to get into this habit of BSing, it's that we don't really care whether something's true or false. We're just concerned to jump through the next hoop. And that's maybe even more dangerous than somebody who's actually trying to you know, deceive somebody. You're cultivating this attitude of indifference uh, and, and not really caring. Um, so well, thanks for your discussion today. Uh, I appreciate it. We'll continue to reflect on this. And, and I'll do my best. And, and if, if, if I start to slip, you, you, you do your best to all hold ourselves to this vision of what we're doing together uh, in this class throughout the semester. Uh, all right, I'll see you in class on Thursday.